Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. This week, I have a conversation with an M&A advisor named David Newell. David is a senior advisor at Quiet Light, and according to his bio, he's an industry expert in the valuation and sale of SaaS businesses. He's a former investment banker at Citi, which he did for three years before moving into the online business space. And he's advised on the sale of several well-known bootstrapped B2B apps, including in the sale of Drip back when he worked for FE International. And he also helped with sale of apps like Less Accounting and Sifter and CodeTree and Hittail as well, which is another one that I had sold through FE back when David worked with them. I've known David for several years, met him at a a few conferences. I believe he was at Rhodium Weekend, Chris Yates' event in Vegas years ago. And David just has a lot of experience, you know, on the sell side and also working with buyers of, of SaaS apps. In our conversation, we talk about what valuations look like today. And it's kind of fun because I threw out my rules of thumb and he says, I think they're a little bit richer. He said, I think they've, they've gone up. It's a, little, it's a little hotter. My valuations are probably from, let's say, two, three years ago. And that's the beauty of SaaS, right, is this stuff keeps going up and to the right. So you can hear us bat back and forth, kind of some rules of thumb valuations, both on the, hey, if you're going to sell for net profit versus I'm going to sell for a revenue multiple, you know, at what point that transitions and in what instances you can sell for profit versus Uh, revenue multiple. And we talk about things that sellers do really well and things that some sellers do very poorly. So you can kind of mentally evaluate where you yourself might fall, even if you never plan on selling or buying a SaaS company. There's still a lot of good information here about how to have a business that is well documented and, and that operates well. But before we dive in, I've mentioned this in the past, but through MicroConf, we've partnered with Basecamp and Basecamp has a 60-second sponsorship slot on this podcast. And every once in a while, we get to hear from them. So I'm going to roll that right here. We asked founders and entrepreneurs why they switched to Basecamp when their company started to grow. Christina had just hired some more people. When it came to internal communication, everything was all over the place. There was more work and more people than before, and no way to keep track of it all. Sometimes information was in an email, sometimes in the chat room. They spent too much time on conference calls to figure out what was going on. Then one day, they almost missed a deadline for an important customer because the information was in the wrong place. She knew they needed to get organized, but all the software she looked at seemed complicated and it would take too long to train everybody. Then she found Basecamp. Basecamp puts all of your internal communication in one place so nothing slips through the cracks. And unlike other tools, Basecamp has an incredibly simple structure organized around your teams and projects. Your team will immediately understand and start using it when they see the two-minute introduction video on our site. Go to Basecamp.com to learn more and start a free trial. Thanks again to Basecamp, and I hope you enjoy my conversation today with David Newell. David Newell, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you. Yeah, so you are, as I said in your intro, you're a senior advisor at Quiet Like Brokerage, and you specialize in SaaS. And I wanted to have you on the show today because obviously, you know, a huge chunk of our listenership, they're either SaaS founders, aspiring SaaS founders. And while there's something I've been, I've been saying this for years and people, people don't tend to believe me, but I'll say, you know, you may never sell your, your business, may never sell your SaaS app, but my guess is you will, like most people do. Like we can point out a few examples like, yes, MailChimp and Basecamp and Wildbit. And there, you know, there's a couple others, but like the majority of people eventually, they either get tired, they get bored, they get old and want to retire. They, they do whatever, you know, and they, and they want to get rid of their business. But even if you don't, and even if you want to run it forever, running it as if it was a sellable asset, 
can make the business more efficient and not only make it more valuable if you wanted to sell it, but it can just remove your day-to-day stress and how much you need to be an operator in your business, just make it a more efficient asset. 100%. Yeah, I think it's very funny, actually, when almost everything that you do to improve the business for sale actually makes the business better operationally. And it's been said to me at least a dozen times when we've gone through the prep process for going to market that you know owners have said oh I actually decided that I really really love my business I'm not sure whether I want to sell it now having gone through the kind of understanding that you know is needed to kind of prep it for market so yeah it's a philosophy and a mindset that if you build in from the get-go you're only going to improve you know your life operationally and then of course when you come to market Yeah, and that's the thing we were talking before we hit record that thinking like a buyer, whether you're a seller or whether you're going to operate your business, thinking like a buyer, it's just helpful to have that context and it can improve, you know, your business, as you're saying, operationally. And I think a key piece to this is as a listener, if you're listening to this and you think, well, I never want to buy a business or I never plan to sell a business, A, I would reconsider that mentally because I thought that once too. And, um, And now I've sold many. And also, even if you truly never do, that still hearing how this works, you know, can can improve the business you run day to day. So as, as we get into it, I want to set the stage for folks. You know, they may have heard of, of Quiet Light Brokerage. Quiet Light's been around for 13 years, you were telling me, since 2007. I didn't realize that, that they, you know, had been around that long. But I'm curious how many deals approximately or just some some idea of, of how large the brokerage is, how many deals maybe you guys do in a year. Yeah, so there's 10 of us now internally working as advisors in the business. The deal count varies by year, I think, but it ranges somewhere usually between like 75 and 100 closed transactions a year. And our average is about a million to 1.5. So it's typically around the kind of 75 million to 100 million in closed transactions a year. So yeah, it's a lot of activity across a lot of people and a lot of different business models as well. Most we do e-com, SaaS and content. So we really get to see a lot of different digital business models and interact with a lot of different buyers and sellers. Yeah. And some people hear those numbers and they think, wow, that's not a lot. And other people think, wow, that's a lot, depending on the perspective you come from. You know, when I think of building a little business and selling it for a quarter million dollars a year, 500, or not a quarter million a year, but a quarter million dollar sale price or half a million, like you have to do a lot of deals in a year to get to that, you know, that hundred million mark. I'm curious, let's say I owned a SaaS app today and I was going to sell through, you know, through a broker like Quietlight. What's kind of the bottom end maybe annual, it's seller discretionary earnings, but let's define that in a minute. Let's just call it net profit for now. We both know that it's SDE, but what's kind of the bottom end, you know, net profit that would be worth going through a process like this for SaaS app? Yeah, I mean, I think the floor really for us, it varies by different advisors. For us, it's about 100,000. We tend not to list anything below the kind of quarter of a million mark, 300,000 mark. I mean, there are other more independent brokers or sort of smaller advisory places that might do it. But yeah, once you hit that kind of 100,000 threshold in SDE, then it's very much worth, you know, stepping into kind of working with a, one of the more established brokerages. Right, right. And let's, so let's define SDE. Let's get into that. Seller discretionary earnings. The way I've heard it described to me or the way I understand it is it's your EBITDA, it's your net profit that you would make from the business in a year, but you get to add things back to that. For example, I always charge my laptop, my cell phone bill, my inner, my home internet bill because I work from the house. Some people charge their cars. I don't know how they justify that if you're running a SaaS app, but people charge all types of stuff. I charge, I'll charge trips to conferences. I just charge it all to my business, even, even a salary that I take out, right? So 
all of that I can add back in because it, it kind of is profit in essence that I'm just taking out and maybe using for kind of expenses that are maybe on the edge, you know, or that otherwise I would just pay for personally. Is that an accurate representation? Do you have anything to add? Yeah, exactly. I think it's it's operating profit plus three big categories of expenses. So all of your owner compensation, and that could include your health insurance and anything basically attached to you and compensating yourself, dividends and so forth. And then, yeah, like you said, anything that's kind of personal expenses, travel, meals, accommodation, just random things that people like to add in to uh, reduce their end of year tax bill. And then um, the third piece is one-time sunk expenses. So for example, if you got a trademark that year or did some like intellectual property work or some legal work that sunk, anything that's not going to be recurring or that a new owner taking over the business wouldn't like routinely have to pay for. So you've kind of taken that on, you can add that back. So those three categories of expenses you can add back and then you get to that magic SDE number. Right. And then if we were to roll from SDE right into to valuations, and let's kind of talk about SaaS valuations these days. I have some rules of thumb. I'm curious to see if they're still relatively accurate. But there's this, this conversation around selling based on SDE or profit in a sense versus selling on a revenue multiple. And the way I try to describe it is, look, if you have a, a strategic buyer where there's, you know, they're going to acquire the company usually with the team and the technology. If I were selling my company and a strategic was buying it, I would only sell for a revenue multiple if I was selling a SaaS app. In addition, there are private equity firms that are paying revenue multiples. Uh, once you get above about a million to one, you know, I think it's once you start getting into seven figures, they will pay revenue multiples. And this is specifically SaaS because I'm not hearing about this in e-commerce and I'm not hearing about this in content sites, but SaaS is hot these days. Versus selling on the net profit multiple or the SDE multiple tends to be Again, this is just my, I'm throwing this out, and I want you to counter or you know or correct it. But those tend to be the smaller deals that I hear about. You know, if you're doing like you said, a hundred grand a year in in SDE, then you get a multiple on that. You're not going to get a multiple on on top line revenue. Where am I correct and, and incorrect with that analysis? No, you're absolutely right. It, it, SaaS is very interesting as a valuation landscape because, as you said, it's the only business model that straddles two different valuation approaches, your earnings-led multiple or your revenue-led multiple. And I guess some of the confusion that comes up about which one to use when is really in thinking about what's the where's the life cycle of the app. So as a rough guide, I would say that the revenue multiple starts to kick in as an approach or evaluation approach at, like you said, a million dollars in ARR. And that's not like an absolute hard and fast number, but the reason it's chosen there is typically because the business has started to achieve a level of scale at which the buyers that are operating there, like PE and strategics, feel that it's commensurate to like apply that kind of valuation approach. There are some other caveats to it, which is that the business also needs to, at that point, have been really reducing its churn down to 4% or lower per month. It really needs to have a proper team in place, proper CTO, proper development, customer support, onboarding, sort of customer enrichment team, all of which would have done the work of you know reducing the churn component. And the last piece is it really needs to be starting to grow very, very strongly, like at least 40% year over year in revenue growth. And so... What you see basically is most apps, and you'll know this, Rob, because you've started several yourself, 
start as like often single owner operator businesses you know you build out the code base you start getting your customer base you start generating some earnings and you can be get to you know 100k or 200k or 300k in mrr and the app can actually get uh, relatively profitable if you start adding back you know your owner compensation and so that's the kind of early stage life cycle than app where if you want to you can exit for an SDE type multiple but there's almost like a decision point you need to make there and I think you did this expertly with drip of course where you just decide I'm going to start reinvesting all of the profits of the app everything I have into getting a team in place into getting a proper development customer support and start ramping as much of the marketing as possible and so you then start to head up to that seven figure ARR figure and then you're really kind of solving some of the bigger challenges in the business you're taking it from this kind of smaller sort of side project app if you like into what starts to look like a proper company and so when it comes to deciding is my business earnings or revenue multiple based like what does it what does it sort of command you really have to look at what's the stage in the life cycle that it's at how fast is it growing does it have like proper company apparatus around it because that's going to inform who's going to be interested in buying the business which to your point informs what actual valuation approach they take so that's kind of how the dynamic works and it can vary a bit even around the size because you know you can still get a revenue multiple for a business that's at say 400 or 500k in ARR because you may have solved all of those problems very quickly and you may have a strategic that's a great fit knocking on your door but on average tends to be at the seven figure and up. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep some folks anonymous up for obvious reasons, but through stuff we've worked on, you know, with Tiny Seed, I know of a founder who got an offer and accepted it for it was 10x revenue and his revenue was approaching six figures ARR. He was still in five figures. But he had really good tech and he had just enough traction that the strategic, it was just worth it. You know, it was worth it and, and he wasn't going to sell it for less. So there are always the exceptions to, the, to these rules, of course, but I like the way, yeah, kind of like the way you've thought about it there, or you've def- described it. So when I think then, let's talk about selling for SDE multiple. And someone asked me the other day, they said, hey, I, I have a SaaS app that's doing a couple hundred grand a year in, in net profit. You know, what type of valuation should I expect? And I said, well, it depends on how fast it's growing and the stage it's at and stuff. But I would think three to four times your annual net profit, your SDE. And I often like when I run a loose rule of thumb, I'll go to like three and a half is, is the typical one I use today. And, and then I said, look, if it's flat or declining, it might be something, you know, I, a business that I sold that you and I worked on several years back sold for, um, if I recall, it was like 2.7x because it was either flat or like actively declining a few percent per month at that time. And of course, I was willing to sell it because it was still a nice chunk of cash for me. And I had so much else going on that I, you know, I just wasn't going to turn it around. So with kind of that range in mind, what do you think? Yeah, I think the market's probably got a little bit more buoyant since then, which is good good for sellers. I would say that now the typical range is between three and five. The median, I would say, is probably at kind of 3.8, 3.9 or so. And the big, yeah, informing, you know, there's always multiple variables that really define where you fall on that range. But I think the big things are really age, growth, churn, and owner time. Obviously, in the one that we worked on, yeah, I mean, 
Typically, you probably wouldn't try and list something like that. I think we felt that, you know, we liked the underlying app and, you know, even with a slight decline, we'd probably get away with it. And we did in the end. Yeah, I think three to five is kind of a solid range to think about. You know, if I think of a app that's sort of doing 25% growth year over year, that's say, you know, 20 hours of work a week and maybe like two or three years old, that's probably going to command, yeah, something around the kind of 3.7, 3.8 level, you know, with, with relatively low churn. Yeah, and which is this is great, you know, because I was I was doing this um, buying and selling stuff before I knew about any of the brokers, really before kind of the brokerage ecosystem had evolved in our space, and so I was buying and selling on SitePoint and then on Flippa when it came around, and the multiples there were like twelve to eighteen months of. The net pro, I mean, it was really gnarly, you know? It was the Wild West back then. <laughs> it was, and it was it was tough. And I bought a few deals that I just got completely screwed on, and then I got several deals that, that allowed me to quit my job. But I, for one, like the fact that we do have this, A, it's a much higher, as, as a seller of apps, you know, as a builder, as a maker, I think the fact that we have raised that multiple for SaaS and that this 3 to 5x range exists and that we all kind of know that I think is really helpful. It's similar with buying and selling real estate, it's like, yes, we have comps and we have Zillow and Redfin and you can kind of get an idea of what something's worth versus, I don't know, certain assets like art or really expensive Silver Age comic books. Like it's not as liquid a market and it often is hard to really find out how much this thing is worth. And so I think having these rules of thumb is helpful for us as an industry because it just allows there to be more of a liquid, you know, more of a liquid space because buyers don't come in thinking, oh, I want 1x and sellers aren't thinking, oh, I want 10x. Well, that's an illiquid market, right? And the closer we can kind of, you know, narrow it down, I think to where everybody's on the same page going into a transaction, I think the more likely it is to go through. Yeah, and I think, you know, not to pat myself too much on the back here, a lot of that, actual improvement evaluation has come from professionalization of the secondary market and that has come from a lot of advisors working really hard to present deals better get better metrics like do a lot of buyer and seller education and just make the whole ecosystem way more transparent and robust now and i think yeah that's why the numbers have gone to where they are yeah i would agree with that and so those are SDE, seller discretionary earnings, which again, in my mind, I translate to kind of net profit valuations. If we're going to talk about revenue valuations, I don't think we spend too much time on it. But again, when I think of, of an app that's growing, like you said, 40% a year or more, hits that seven-figure ARR mark, forward-looking, I would, again, as a seller, I would always do forward-looking ARR, especially if I was growing, meaning you take the current month and multiply by 12, you don't look back at the, you know, the last 12 months. I would think if I got to that that million dollar mark that I'd be looking at between maybe two and four X of revenue. And as I start to get up to, I don't know, three, four, five million, I'm thinking three to five X, three to six X revenue. And it can go up and down from there. Obviously a lot of factors, but is my mental model, you think it's accurate or what what are you seeing in the in the market today? I think it's probably a little richer again. Yeah. I mean, this is a difficult one because, as you know, and you've seen a lot in Tiny Seed, there's a big distortion factor between where strategists can come in on specific deals when the right stars align and where kind of private equity, I think, arguably set a more of a stable kind of financial sort of approach to valuing businesses. I tend to try and stick with the financial private equity kind of model because you never know when the strategy is going to come in with a whacking multiple that makes sense specifically for them. But yeah, I mean, I 
I look a lot at this concept of the rule of 40 when it comes to revenue uh, businesses, and that's a revenue multiple on SaaS businesses. And that's basically if the business's revenue growth plus its EBITDA margin for that year is at or above 40%. So let's say it's growing at 35% year over year and it's got 5% in EBITDA margin, then it's just at that threshold. Then it starts to command, yeah, probably at that point around the kind of three and a half, four X revenue. And then every kind of meaningful step up, it is above that level. So if it's kind of like growing at 50% year over year or 55% year over year and has 5% uh, EBITDA margin, so added together it gets to 60%, then it's 20% north of that rule of 40 number. And so it really starts to push uh, higher than that. And so all of that, of course, needs to be qualified with the quality of that revenue growth, which then feeds into what's going on with the churn number. But yeah, the range that I think about in terms of revenue multiple then would stretch if we're just talking about kind of where PE guys land, yeah, it's anywhere between two at the bottom where it's something that's really, really flat, stretching up to eight eight times I've seen kind of private equity guys comfortably go to. They sort of tend to tap out a bit after that. And then north of that is very much the realm of strategics that's very, very specific and unique to the, the deal in question. And the higher the revenue, the multiple tends to edge up to, right? If you If you're at 2 million ARR versus 8 million ARR, it's a different conversation. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that's the same across every business model. And the reason for that is so simple, which is that it's much harder to grow faster at, you know, at scale. And it's, you have a much more valuable business, obviously, at scale than you do believe that. So yeah, if you're continuing to grow 40% year over year, doing 10 million in ARR versus 1 million, then yeah, it's going to be a meaningful shift in multiple. So I want to mix it up a little bit and and look at, you know, you've done a lot of deals in your career, but maybe if if you can think back to an example in your head of of a deal that you worked on in the past year where you were representing a seller. And first, I want to talk about, hey, where when was a deal? You know, we obviously we'll keep it anonymous because NDAs and, and all that. But when was a deal where you felt like the seller just did everything right, had all their ducks in a row, and it was as as an advisor, it was just a really really easy deal to present and it was obviously had all the right information and stuff and I'd love to hear you know some items on that list where you showed up and it was just like man this thing is dialed in and then we'll flip and look at a point where uh, someone did kind of everything wrong or most things wrong and maybe hear about the, the most common pitfalls that people have in businesses that kind of lower their valuations and I really hope the one who did everything wrong was not me <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway so let's start it with everything right yeah I mean I think if you want to get the best value in market, you have to have transparency and you have to be able to display like how good a business is. And that really pours through into two deep components, which is metrics, all of your SaaS metrics pertaining to all of your revenue churn, LTV, ARPU, everything. The more granular you can get into that, the better, the, the better that's tracked, the better. Um, and then the side, the second is, of course, the financials side of things. And where I see the biggest challenge come up with SaaS businesses is that in my experience working with a lot of SaaS business owners is that they often have multiple projects on the go at any one point in time and they hold them all under one particular holding company and they share their resources across different apps, some which work out and some which don't, which means that you then have this incredibly mixed expense base across all of these different apps. So when you go to sell it, it becomes extremely impossible, extremely difficult to 
articulate to a buyer how much expense should be attributed to a a particular app, the particular app in question. And so, yeah, thinking about this contrast of one business that went really well and one that didn't, both taken place actually in the last six months or so, you know, I think the biggest markers of difference was that in the case of the, the one that was working very well, you know, she turned up, everything was incredibly well dialed in in terms of in profit well, her metrics, financials were completely crisp, clear in QuickBooks, you know, isolated within one corporate entity, everything was meshed, you know, sort of measured up and tracked. She had IP assignments already in place with the third party developers. I mean, she just had all of her documentation set and ready. And I think the biggest thing that she did right was she had taken a very, very structured approach to marketing in terms of contacting lots of affiliates and lots of influencers in her space and had kind of put everything that she'd ever done into a spreadsheet in terms of contact information and communication. And so that was an example of incredible level of detail. But when you could display that to a buyer and say, look, you can literally just pick this up and go and run with it now, it was a slam dunk going to market. We had an incredible success with that and put it under offer very quickly at a very high multiple. Conversely, just recently, I had a listing where all of the uh, customers are billed essentially by wire. So nobody's using Stripe or any of the classic merchant processes. So there's nothing to plug in in terms of SaaS metrics. There was no tracking of customer numbers, no tracking of any SaaS metrics whatsoever. You just got X dollars in the bank every single month with like complete opacity into what's actually going on inside the business. So you essentially had to go back three years and rebuild the customer waterfall chart that you would normally see in in bare metrics or something by hand, which was very time consuming and... Yeah, I think he he had run into the same issue uh, again with the number side of thing. He had like multiple apps developers working across them all, and then you just run into a real problem with buyers around you know how do they trust the numbers that you're saying in terms of the expenses associated with it. So it's a tricky one. And to be honest with you, uh, to be really honest with you, that situation is not entirely cured through the multiple. And I think a lot of the times. Uh, sellers can be like, oh, I don't mind taking like, you know, a whole multiple, one whole multiple off my price if I deal with that. Sometimes actually becomes like really almost impossible to sell because you reduce the, the trust down because there's just not enough transparency. So yeah, I think really having metrics and financials dialed, I know it sounds incredibly basic, but it's uh, very, very, very important for coming to market. Yeah, I can imagine. It sounds like documentation is a big part of it and just clean clean finances and clean metrics with SaaS would be the thing. And that's, as I think about it, like when we go to invest in tiny seed or pre-tiny seed when I would go to invest with my own money, there are just a handful of things I ask for. And it, that's what it is. It's like, what do your numbers look like? What's your funnel look like? What are your conversion rates here and there? And I probably dig in more than maybe a, a buyer of a SaaS app would because growth is the end result of all of the, uh, you know, all of that stuff. But I would, I mean, when we invest, I'm like, hey, what is your trial to pay? And what is your visitor to trial and all that stuff? And because it, it gives me a sense of the business, right? I have a mental model of how SaaS works and I can kind of start fitting it into these buckets. So it does make sense that that to a buyer, especially a savvy buyer, can describe, really describe the health of a business just by having clean finances, clean metrics, and and having everything documented in a way that that you can prove it out. And I remember, so when I sold Hittail, I'm trying to think if I had stuff split out and I don't think I did. Certainly with Drip, by that point, I had spun it out into its own 
S-Corp, I think. And whereas Hittail was mixed in and I did have to do some pulling apart of expenses and it was a bit, I remember it was a lot of work on my side and it was not an ideal situation. And so that wouldn't, that would certainly be a mistake I wouldn't make again in the future, you know, as having shared bank accounts and shared credit cards and all that. It just seemed easy at the time. Again, it's that thing of, I don't think I'll ever sell this. And then you get to a point where it's like, oh, I want to sell this. Now it's a real pain in the ass to go back and reconstruct this stuff. Yeah, and you can get away with it to a greater degree on a smaller sale, which was the situation around kind of Hidtail. But, you know, if you'd have tried to do that with Drip, <laughs> it would have been almost, you know, a non-starter. And so I think the challenge is that, and you'll know this as well, Rob, when you're building a business, it can be very easy to get stuck into the operational kind of nuts and bolts and, and not really kind of zoom out enough to think about that, particularly on the finances side of things. I think most of the time people have got their metrics properly dialed. I still see it every now and again, that being a bit off-piste. But yeah, and so, you know, if you start scaling the business, you end up in a situation where you are at something that's at reasonable scale, but it looks like a car crash when you look at it from a reporting standpoint. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, of reporting, you know, there's obviously these great metrics tools like Bear Metrics, ProfitWell, ChartMogul are the three that I hear about more. Most often, and frankly, a bunch of my investments uh, use them. If someone uses one of those, is it, is it pretty much a slam dunk for you, for you guys to be able to pull stuff out? Yeah, that stuff's just de facto standard now if you have. And I think ProfitWell's free as well, so it's no excuse to not use it. <laughs> yeah. No, indeed. In fact, one of the tiny seed companies is called Summit. It's at usesummit.com. Integrates with all three of those and then pulls their data in and does um, forward-looking projections, which I think could be even, like if I was a buyer these days, I, I, of course I want to look back, but I would almost love to see, you know, you could run different scenarios of like, hey, if I, if I can improve this number to this or if I hire a salesperson, I think it's going to do this. You could project it out. And I think that could be a pretty interesting thing moving forward. I think the founder, I think he's headed where the puck is going in terms of this, like as SaaS tools, both metrics tools, but just all the tools we have to build these apps as they get more and more sophisticated. I think it you know, can make it just a little bit easier in these. As it gets more competitive, I think we need better tools to be able to keep up. And so as we start to wrap up, I want to um, ask you a little bit on the buy side. And I know, I mean, I tend to think on the, on the seller side, again, because, well, and, and I know you do too, as an advisor, you, you deal with the seller first, you know, and you, you have to get their numbers together, put together a prospectus, and, and you're essentially marketing that to buyers. But if there's someone in the audience who's thinking about maybe buying their first SaaS app and whether they have a couple hundred thousand dollars in cash, which most people don't, don't, I'm guessing, but whether they do have some money to do it or whether they are going to be thinking about doing an SBA loan or coming a little bit of seller financing along with some cash, like what do the best buyers have? What do the best buyers do that's different than kind of deals that, that are maybe more difficult or that don't go through because of, of issues with the buyer? I think that the most intelligent buyers tend to understand that a really successful deal will come together if they go at it in partnership with the seller that's already there. And so I think they take an extremely collaborative approach even from the outset. So as soon as they jump on the call, if they like, you know, like the early call about discovering a bit more about the business, they'll take an immediately kind of partnership they're essentially starting to build a friendship and a relationship right away and rather looking at it as a you know close and done transaction where just going to pay the amount do the due diligence and and close out and leave it 
they realize that the owner is still a massive storehouse of information within the business. And that is going to give them, if they can keep them on side and maybe even keep them incentivized to help consult, for example, after the deal, that's going to be massively conducive to their success in the business. And so everyone that I've seen as a master operator when it comes to buying a business starts that kind of partnership vibe right away and they continue it through due diligence. That intent to create that deep relationship post-sale is incredibly important, particularly the larger the deal, the more so. You know, there's just so much post-sale in any deal that you don't know fully about the asset that you're buying. And obviously, you know, you know this, Rob, to some extent, was obviously moving over to lead pages to help for the first few months or the first year or so and then the same principle applies you know even on smaller transactions and i think that really really intelligent buyers get that and i would also say with respect to their due diligence process as well they get very deep into ensuring that they're going to be able to like run with the business post-sale and so looking a lot into the quality of the code base looking at you know how well annotated it is looking at how well documented it is speaking a lot with the developers to really understand some of the critical components behind it so that you don't end up in a situation you know three to six months post-sale where you're tinkering around with a <laughs> code base that you don't fully understand yet and this you know the seller's not around and not particularly like amenable to helping you so everyone that i've seen that does very successful buy side work kind of sticks to those principles and plays them out through through from offer through due diligence and into closing all right, David. Well, yeah, thanks so much again for uh, taking some time with me today. If folks want to dig more into this stuff, um, you've done a lot of writing on this topic. And one of the articles that I think it's almost like a, it's like a damn book, man. It's like an ebook length for sure. We'll link it up in the show notes, but it's called How to Build, Value, and Sell a SaaS Business for Six, Seven, or Eight Figures. There's eight different sections and you just kind of talk more in depth about all the stuff we've talked about today. So again, link that up in the show notes. And if folks want to keep up with you at Quiet Light, it's quietlightbrokerage.com. And on Twitter, it's at quietlightinc. That's I-N-C. Thanks again to David for coming on the show. I haven't done a Q&A episode in a while, but I think in the next one or two episodes, I will be. So if you have questions for me or a guest that I bring on the show about, these ambitious yet sane SaaS companies, a lot of bootstrapped, some self-funded. There's a few that are raising the angel rounds and the indie funded, but just around this idea of building companies where it's it's founder first, where founder maintains control, where we, we focus on building profitable, real companies, real businesses for real customers. Send those questions in. Questions at startups for the rest of us. Voicemails always go to the top, but always happy to accept text questions as well. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you again next Tuesday morning.